Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we hear from a former Ukrainian reporter and soldier now based in Detroit who spent the last eight months speaking with contacts and searching through social media to share stories on his podcast that will help a global audience better understand the war in Ukraine and the cost of Russia's indiscriminate attacks on civilian targets. We find out why European countries, including Germany, are bracing for a tough fall and winter as energy shortages related to the war start to bite. Former Toronto Police Detective Dave Perry joins us to talk about the tragic death of two police officers in the small community of Innisfil, north of the Ontario capital, shot and killed while responding to a domestic call late Tuesday, and the impact of what has been a deadly month in Ontario that seen four officers killed in just 30 days. But first, nearly eight months to the day since the federal government took the unprecedented step of invoking the Emergencies Act to end weeks-long blockades, a mandated inquiry into that decision begins on Thursday. What will it attempt to discover? Who will testify? And what impact could it have? Speaking of the last time it was dark like this, let's go back to last winter. All eyes are going to be on Ottawa tomorrow, nearly eight months to the day since the federal government took the unprecedented step of invoking the Emergencies Act to put an end to weeks-long blockades, including of Parliament Hill. A mandated inquiry into that decision, um, the decision to use those powers, begins tomorrow. The Public Order Emergency Commission, it's called, will be presided over by former Ontario Superior Court Justice Paul Rouleau. More than 60 witnesses are expected to testify starting Friday, including the Prime Minister and other members of Cabinet, high-profile protesters, law enforcement, and people impacted by the occupation in Ottawa and elsewhere. You'll remember back to February 14th, after weeks of business closures, cross-border strains, all that honking of horns, concerns about the threats or acts of serious violence, uh, the Prime Minister took the unprecedented step of invoking the Emergencies Act for the first time since it had become law in 1988. Well, today, ahead of the hearings, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, who were opposed to the invocation of the Act, say they feared the federal government will seek to keep some information from becoming public during the inquiry. Kara Zwiebel is a lawyer with the group and says she has questions about the government's level of transparency so far. I think we will have questions about whether the government is being forthcoming enough, whether the evidence is is going to allow the kind of transparency that we think is required. Still at Justice Rouleau's request, the Liberal government has waived cabinet confidence on documents related to the invocation of the act. That is a rare move. Uh, Rouleau has also been directed through an order in council to offer, quote, lessons learned about the use of the act and to comment on the, quote, appropriateness and effectiveness of the measures taken. Well, joining us with more on this now is Michael Kempa. He's an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa and someone who's followed this whole uh, saga, we could call it, from beginning to end very closely. Thank you for your time again tonight. Thank you. So this is a mandated, inqui- mandated inquiry. We knew this was going to happen, uh, not too far from where the blockade once was, as a matter of fact, but not to assign blame. Is that right? No, the, the purpose of the inquiry, as laid out in the Act, is to uncover all of the breakdowns in the civil or institutions, the local police, security agencies, the three levels of government that led to the invocation of the Act, for the purposes that we fix that civil system, we never have to mobilize the Emergencies Act for the same reasons twice. It's about fixing things. It's not about assigning blame. The idea being, of course, that the Emergencies Act, as a measure of last resort, shouldn't be shouldn't be used if it can be avoided. That's absolutely right. And uh, when we look at it, I'm quite confident that the information that will come out will show that we really should never have got to this in the sense that had we been properly prepared, had we recognized the threat coming from ideological extremists in our country, some of whom were were behind certain streams of the Freedom Convoy protest, there were many other protesters who had nothing to do with it, we would have been able to deal with this in a peaceable way without invoking the Emergencies Act. But things spiraled out of control due to our lack of preparedness to the point that the last safety valve of pulling the Emergencies Act off the shelf uh, and invoking it became necessary. How much will the focus be? I know there's been so much talk and Ottawa was was really the focal point for so long uh, of all of this. But I would imagine that one of the things that we'll have to try and figure out here, which is probably just as important, um, is is the blockades at the borders, because certainly the Master Bridge probably uh, was a was a 
bigger deal internationally than what was happening in Ottawa. Oh, it certainly was. Uh, I mean, the American government, the Biden administration, was pretty unequivocal. At one point, they basically said to the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, clear up the border or we will offer you assistance from Homeland Security. And to most people's ears, that sounded less like an, an offer as it was not a threat, but seriously chiding the Canadian government to get the situation under control because it was seriously threatening trade, uh, money flowing across the border, and uh, the United States simply won't tolerate that kind of um, instability right on their borders. The list of witnesses is interesting because in many ways it reads like a who's who of that entire period, uh, more than 60. What do you expect uh, to hear? It's going to be interesting to see all the people that are on that witness list appear in front of this uh, in front of this inquiry. It is. My read of it is that they're starting locally. They'll start with people who are impacted, the local police, the police services board, this municipal government, and then work their way up. I'm a little concerned I don't see Doug Ford or the Solicitor General for Ontario at the time, Sylvia Jones, on that list. They were very important for liaising between cities and the federal government. Um, but they worked their way up to the federal government, the idea being this builds to understanding what information the federal government had in its hands at the time that they decided to invoke the Emergencies Act. Were there choices for the specific powers that they mobilized around declaring the illegal protest zone, around freezing bank accounts and seizing property and so forth if you were down there? Were these the right choices given the information that they had? I'll imagine it's going to be uncomfortable for, for a certain number of those witnesses. I'm thinking of specifically Ottawa police at the time. Um, are, are they, Are they? just so I understand, are they under oath? Is this, do they have to they answer? Indeed. Or is it, they, is, are indeed. they are indeed. You can be, so have, if you, obviously, if you're under oath and you are found to have perjured yourself, you can be charged criminally, uh, in fact, and it's it's quite serious. So Canadians need to take that into account. The people who are appearing are under oath. All of the documents submitted go through the proper procedures of court vetting, just as if you were submitting evidence to the courts. This is not going to be a forum for saying whatever you like and raising all kinds of nonsense and competing arguments and yelling and screaming, such as what we might see in Parliament or the House of Commons these days. It will be structured, orderly, and it will force security professionals and politicians and convoy organizers to present their arguments clearly and logically such that Canadians will get the clearest picture of this thing through this forum. I would almost say I would ignore what I've been hearing in the House of Commons in favor of what comes out of this inquiry. Yeah, I imagine Justice, Justice Rouleau, too. I mean, he's got a lot of experience. He'll be running a very tight ship, I suspect. Well, he'll have to. And we cannot under one of the huge purposes of an inquiry like this is public education. People's faith in the institutions of the Canadian state, the police, the police governance system, the levels of government, CSIS, the intelligence agencies, were seriously shaken in the context of the Freedom Convoy. People were, they heard about weapons, they heard about layers of protest, they heard about some people were only there for a good time, whereas others had bad intentions. The state seemed to do nothing. If we don't present the information now, and in a sense, own it, and the political leaders own what happened and explain themselves and outline what they intend to do to improve things in the future, well, the commission will not have achieved the objective of restoring faith in the Canadian state. All of that's on Rouleau's shoulders. He must be aware of that. But he's a tough judge. I don't think he'll have a hard time dealing with that. There's documentation involved here, too. Uh, I understand a lot of that's already been submitted. Um, they already have it in hand. What's done with that? What, what are we going to expect to see in terms of documentation? Well, tomorrow morning, the first action of Justice Rouleau is he's going to open the proceedings by outlining what is already known, uh, in, in essence, almost like a bullet point summary of the facts that have been established through the documents. There is an idea that there is going to be a major document dump where it will be shared with journalists and the public, but we are not clear at all what documents we'll be getting tomorrow and what will be held back talking about a couple of documents or all of them um, that could have been communicated a little bit more clearly. But 
we'll see what he has to say tomorrow morning. Yeah, and in terms of cabinet confidentiality, I know there's been, we've heard a bit about that today as well, some concerns over just what exactly will be provided and what won't. Um, Do you have any concerns on that front? I do. Uh, The answer is pretty simple, and I think Rouleau will stick to it, which is cabinet should only withhold information in that they can clearly show this judge that it is in the national interest to do so. It would compromise national security for that information to be shared with the public, not in the government interest to hold it back, not in Justin Trudeau's interest, not in the cabinet interest, only in the national interest. And that is such a narrow definition. We're really talking about like information the government may have about a specific terror organization that they don't want that organization to know they have about them. Other than that, it should be open, and I'm quite certain that Rouleau will put the government's feet to the fire if they attempt to hold anything back. It really is his job to have this be as publicly open as possible. Yeah, you've mentioned this before. Transparency is what's needed here more than anything else. So I think a lot of us understand sort of how things unfolded, but we we need to get a better look into what the decision-making process was at all levels uh, for this to happen. And the transparency has to be there so that justice is seen. Well, justice is probably the wrong word here, but that that the inquiry is seen to to be done as much as it is being done. That is definitely the case. And when we're talking about a society like Canada, where there's increasing polarization, people ignoring facts, distrusting information, distrusting experts and so forth. Well, the remedy for that is for government to start treating the citizens as adults, level with them, share information and have people make up their own minds with quality facts. If you hide it, if you hold it back, you leave room for conspiracy theories to spread and it will only worsen the situation. So we should demand that the government begins to treat us all as adults. The inquiry into the invocation of the Emergencies Act back on February the 14th begins tomorrow in Ottawa. We'll start hearing from witnesses on Friday. There are a long list of interesting witnesses from the Prime Minister right on down to shop owners in downtown Ottawa who are impacted by the blockade, as well as convoy leaders and others. Um, our guest this half hour is Michael Kempa. He's an associate professor of criminology at university, the University of Ottawa, who followed the uh, blockades and the invocation of the Emergencies Act very closely at the time and ever since. Uh, so this phase runs through until late November. Is that right, this first phase of the inquiry? That's right. We've got six weeks of... Uh, people giving evidence up until the 25th November. Then they move to a week of what they're calling a policy phase on Monday, November 28th, which is going to be roundtable discussions with experts where they're going to be dialing down into specific policy questions about where things fell apart in the ordinary civil levels of government and policing and security and what might be the policy remedies to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Once they wrap that, Uh, Early November, the commission will go away and prepare its report, which has to be completed uh, in time for uh, the 6th 6th of February. And how broad can the report be? I mean, when we looked at this and we talked about this in the past, this was a a multi-level problem, right, from municipal to provincial to federal and all sorts of different actors involved. Uh, Justice Rouleau's report, can it can it cover all of that or does it really limit itself to providing policy direction to the federal government for the use of this particular uh, Emergencies Act? It will It will not be possible for one commission to deal with every level of question from local municipal policing through municipal government, provincial government responses and coordination with police agencies across the province up through the federal government. They will definitely touch on it. Now, there are a number of other things that are ongoing looking into those questions at those levels. We have the um, the uh, Auditor General in Ottawa examining the policing system in Ottawa specifically. We have the Joint Parliamentary uh, and Senate Committee looking into Um, certain other questions around the security apparatus. I think that this federal inquiry will touch on everything, but it will really focus on questions of coordination. Where did the problem come from and where did the system fall apart in terms of coordination across those three levels of government? 
you know, I covered the Air India Inquiry, the Gomri Inquiry. This feels like it's going to be one that uh, that people are going to pay a lot of attention to. It sort of snuck up on us a bit, uh, but it feels like this is going to be a very big deal day in, day out. It should be. All of the previous inquiries you've mentioned were very important. They dealt with sort of more specific policy issues, however. This one is really about the health of the democratic state in Canada and Really, what we're going to do, and we find ourselves at a crossroads, we're either moving in the direction of an authoritarian, populist type of political environment, or we find ways to correct that trajectory we've been on and bring ourselves back to being a charter-based liberal democracy that will take improved democratic institutions. It's not as simple as writing one report. But it is such an important set of questions about where we're going as a country. I hope that citizens will tune in. It will be live streamed on the Public Order Emergency Commission's uh, website. The proceedings are also open to the public who can attend in person. We should be watching. And it will be good for us to see the screws be put, the judicial screws be put a little bit to political leadership because they'll be out of their comfort zone in the House of Commons where they can use all of their usual tactics of obfuscation, as I say, yelling, screaming, hooting, hollering, making faces, the indignant wagging of fingers, just to answer pointed legal questions. And as we watch that, we should get used to politicians behaving that way and insist that they carry on with that decorum in the House of Commons. Well, that is one of the outcomes of all that has happened in the last year. That will certainly be a welcome one. Michael Kempa, thank you so much for your time tonight. Look forward to catching up as this inquiry goes on. Thank you very much. Well, that song means it's time for our Journalism Corner this week. That's when we invite a journalist from somewhere in the world doing interesting work that we want to talk about tonight. Uh, Before I do that, just a quick note from Wayne in Raleigh, who is a loyal listener about uh, the story brought you at 7.30, about the death of those two police officers shot in the line of duty um, in Innisfil, north of Toronto. Wayne says, sad and mad about shooting a policeman in the GTA. Uh, Thick process of engagement with domestic violence type needs to change. Cops have odds against them the minute they arrive. Absolutely. That's um, something that, you know, even properly trained, as, as Dave Perry was pointing out, our guest, even those who are properly trained, when they arrive in a situation like that, for a little while there at least, it's very unpredictable. And even routine calls can turn very tragic. Thanks for the note, as always, Wayne, in rally. Ukraine's allies on Wednesday, including Canada, announced delivery of new air defenses and committed more military aid to Kyiv after intense Russian missile strikes and in anticipation of the fighting through a harsh winter that awaits. More than 50 countries, including us, met in Brussels on the heels of those heavy retaliatory strikes on Ukraine this week, ordered by Russian President Vladimir Putin. Again, uh, they've launched more attacks. Britt Klinet reports from Kyiv. We are seeing more attacks on civilians by the Russians. You know, there was an attack on a market in the eastern town of Avdivka, killing at least seven. You know, the strike took place at a busy time, which is something we saw on Monday, too. These peak hour attacks for maximum impact, shelling in Nikopol, too, severely injuring several people, including a six-year-old girl. You know, two kindergartens, a school were among those attacks. Three people have been rescued alive from the rubble in Zaporizhia after dozens of missiles rained down on that city earlier this week. Um, All of this has happened as an increasingly desperate Russia is trying to respond to what has been a real momentum shift in this war since September. Ukraine has made significant gains uh, in the east and in the south, but at least 26 people have been killed since Monday in those missile attacks right across the country. Russia, it seems, back to the old playbook that they often use. If they can't defeat uh, a military with their own military, they simply attack defenseless civilians uh, with from the skies, as they've done in other parts, uh, other part, other wars in other places. Um, we often, though, talk about the military gains and losses, the diplomatic side of the war. My next guest, though, has spent nearly eight months trying to share those personal stories of resilience and loss from Ukraine, strength, and Soro. He's now based in Detroit, but has spent decades as a reporter in Ukraine before and joined the military, serving in the east of the country back in 2014. Victor Kovalenko now hosts a podcast called Ukraine Decoded, 
maintains close contact with soldiers on the front lines back in Ukraine, as well as others across government, uh, academia, and beyond. And on the segment we devote to speaking to journalists doing interesting work, Victor Kovalenko is now going to tell us about what it's like to cover a war back at home while abroad and the message that he's trying to deliver to all those who may not be nearly as familiar with Ukraine and this conflict as he is. Uh, Victor Kovalenko, thank you for your time tonight. Oh, thank you, Ben, for inviting me. Uh, Victor, I know it's probably been tough given your background to be outside of Ukraine right now, trying to make sense of what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, but since the beginning, you've, you've felt the need to share information, to find videos online, to try to make sense of the war, not just for yourself, I imagine, but for a broader international audience. What made you decide to do that? This is my genuine interest because I love Ukraine. It's my homeland. I was born there and uh, lived all my life. So when the war started in February, it was a natural desire to start helping Ukraine with what? And with what I can do as a journalist with information, with debunking um, Russian propaganda, was explaining context and background for the Western audience, for English-speaking audience around the world. And I used, of course, social media, the most popular informational tool like Twitter. So I started from there, and, um, and then I um, was uh, invited to make comments for media, so journalists expressed their interests. So it grew into some kind of my volunteer project, with podcasts, with interviews for media, with Twitter um, feed. And I think it's it's helping because uh, thousands of people come back to me um, with um, their gratitude because uh, not everyone b- before February uh, knew about Ukraine uh, many things. Uh, for many people, Ukraine was like some faraway land they didn't actually know about. You've uh, you work very hard to do this. I mean, I know we do interviews with people in Ukraine on this show. The time difference between North America and Eastern Europe is tough. Um, I know you spend long nights searching through videos, looking for good material that you think will explain a story. What sort of information and images do you look for? What do you think is important to show an outside audience right now? I was looking for videos, especially that can create a resonance, create a reaction from uh, people, uh, like uh, human videos, like um, tanks, uh, uh, Russian tanks, they stopped on the middle of the road and the Ukrainian driver stopped by and asked them, can he pull them uh, back to Russia? So this is like a human videos and you can translate them and explain the situation. So uh western audience will understand what's going on so i'm not focused i'm not focusing on uh, videos of combat because everyone can post them and you don't need to explain them you don't need to translate but i'm interested in uh, explaining um dialogues and human emotions like recent videos a couple of days ago from uh kharkiv province where uh, liberated uh, locals, they were greeting uh, Ukrainian troops with tears and emotions. That's what uh, should be uh, translated and explained for the audience. Yeah, because I guess sometimes what's forgotten in all this is the human side of this. We often talk about missiles and, you know, air defenses and uh, the latest military figures and, you know, what's going on in the Kremlin or what's going on in Kiev with, the, with, with President Zelensky. Sometimes we forget to talk about the ongoing impact this is having on everyday Ukrainians, and specifically those in areas that have been liberated or those under under still under Russian control. Yes, you're right, and especially like uh, yesterday, uh, after that missile attack on Kiev, a young uh, physician from the Children's Hospital, she was killed instantly in in by this missile, and her five years old son became an orphan. So that's a tragedy, and uh, the world should see this. Uh, what Russia causes, what this war, uh, what this war is about. So this war is not about conquering uh, Ukrainian land. This is, uh, as I see, it's turning into the punishments and into the genocide. So one nation, Russian nation, is trying to create genocide over another nation, over neighboring nation that tries to to be free tries to to live free you you know this i mean you worked as a journalist for decades in in ukraine you then went to eastern ukraine i was in eastern ukraine at the same time as you were in 2014 and 2015 um 
you know, what 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 should the West know about this? I mean, I think we've talked about it a lot, but you know, is is the military has the capabilities of the Ukrainian military surprised even you? Yes, it surprised me uh, in February and April when uh, I remember when I was in the military, enlisted to the military uh, seven years ago. Uh, unfortunately, it was weak. Ukrainian military was weak and the Russian military was weak as well. So it was a strange situation when we have to fight each other and uh, uh, not very professionally. But I had to to defend my uh, former homeland that time. And uh, since that time, in seven years, uh, that pause uh, after the Minsk agreements allowed Ukraine to rebuild the military as much as possible. And right now, they are professional. They um, they plan professionally their operations. They uh, care about uh, soldiers' lives. They uh, use the weaponry very masterfully. Not just spend uh, all all over the place those ammunition. So I'm I'm proud and glad to see that my uh, former comrades, my colleagues, they uh, fighting Russians even better than uh, we might expect. And I think that the West and military analysts here in the West, they are surprised as well. It's been uh, many months now. I know you still are in contact with people who are fighting. What is the morale like? It has been, it continues to be a long and difficult fight for the Ukrainian side as well. What is morale like on the front lines? No, one sign of uh, high morale is that all my friends, they are joking with me when I try to ask them about what's going on there. So uh, this is this is good that they have a humorous uh, mood and they have sarcasm and they have irony regarding the Russian invaders. So this uh, signifies that their morale is high. So and they are uh, preparing to to liberate the um, the entire territory. And this is uh, gives me um much hope so that's my personal opinion and uh, i think that we should not underestimate ukrainian um ability to uh, to fight because this is about their land and this you know um aggression from russia is not a, it didn't start like 7 years ago it's it's uh, for centuries moscow is trying to subjugate uh, nations around uh, Russia, including Ukraine. So this is like a long story, and Ukrainians are mentally prepared to con- uh, to defend their land. And we should not underestimate their will and their spirit to fight and liberate their uh, territory. Uh, Victor, when you look at what's going on now, we saw the, the escalation again. We saw the attack on the Karch Bridge in um, in the Karch Bridge in Crimea. It feels like there's been a shift in the momentum in this fight from a bit of a stalemate over the summer to something different. Where do you think it's headed? Yes, we see the, the major shift since the beginning of September when Ukraine started uh, counteroffensives in the north uh, east in Kharkiv province and on the south in Kherson. Because uh, Ukrainians, they were accumulating uh, manpower and uh, Western weapons to launch this offensive. After six months of um, of holding the line and exhausting uh, Russian military, that was a great momentum for them to strike back. And I'm uh, I expect that Ukrainians will continue to liberate their territories. First of all, their priority, I think, it's to liberate everything uh, with that was occupied before um after after february 24th so that's uh, that's their major goal the other uh priority is to deoccupy other territories that russia um uh that russia uh, grabbed after 2014 right. that will be m- much more difficult because you know those territories are fortified and uh, it will be much more difficult to um, to organize uh, offensive over there so right I, I, so, I imagine it'll be tough for for Donetsk. It'll be tough for for Luhansk and and, and well, Crimea specifically as well because uh, you know there are challenges there where do you, do you see a time when Ukraine would be ready to try to put an end to this, if they if territory was taken back that had been taken after February twenty um, fourth, and if it was all pushed back to where it had began in the twenty fourth, would that be enough for Ukraine? Do you think? 
I think it's enough. And the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, said that liberation of all territory is enough. Uh, that uh, Ukraine is not going to attack Russia on the Russian land and conquer Moscow and occupy Moscow. No, yeah. we are talking about just uh, liberating. I, I, yeah, I meant more Crimea and I meant Donetsk and, and the, area, the areas that have been under Russian control now for nearly a decade. Why not? Ukraine, this is Ukraine land and Ukraine is, is, is going to liberate Crimea and Donetsk. Despite uh, that Russia claims that this is Russia, this is Russian land. No, it's not. Uh, According to international law, this is the Ukrainian land. When you look at um, what, you know, leaders in Western capitals may have woken up to for a very long time. I remember being there in 2014, uh, even after Crimea, you know, people continue to do business in Russia. People continue to want to deal, think that perhaps Vladimir Putin was someone they could do business with, they could negotiate with. Do you think um, since February 24th that a lot has changed in the way that or what has changed in the way that the West views Putin and Russia? We live in a cynical world, you know, and businesses, they don't care um, sometimes about moral principles. They care about money and profits. This is the aspect we should uh, we should understand. And we, but we need to continue our pressure as journalists, as 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 public uh, on uh, governments and on business circles to explain them that uh, every dollar earned in Russia converts into more rockets uh, that may be uh, falling on heads of innocent people in Ukraine and all over the place. So that's our role, and we need to continue this pressure. One of the concerns, I think, just having been again back in in, in Donbass in 2014, and then watching it now, is that this never ends. That 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 Ukraine will always be under threat from Russia. Um, do you think there is a way for Russia's I, threat to end? I think uh, this time Ukrainians are determined to uh, defeat Russia once and forever. And there is a chance that West can help with this. And I will be more optimistic than pessimistic uh, regarding this. So uh, this time, and President Zelensky, as I understand, he uh, he also thinks the same way, that um, the war should end with the defeat of Russia. What What it will be and how this defeat will look like, I don't know, but... The maximum goal is to defeat Russia. So Russia will not be able to cause harm for the world anymore. So that's that's the uh, major objective uh, Ukraine and and the West should be um, should be considering. Yeah, I, I guess right now in the short term, it continues to be a question of air power uh, or at least air defenses in Ukraine is what is really needed at this point. Yes, because according to the latest uh, missile attacks on Ukraine, Ukraine needs this umbrella, this uh, this uh, roof uh, over its land uh, to protect itself from the from those uh, missiles uh, that Russia is using. So, because Russia is not uh, able to defeat Ukrainian military on the battlefield, so they switched to another form of terror. That's the missile strikes and airstrikes. So Ukraine needs uh, this thick and and developed umbrella was of air defense. So no missile can get into uh, Ukrainian airspace. Uh, there was a lot of talk early in the war that that eventually the eyes of you know the eyes of the West you know, allies would start to wander. That. Um, People would stop paying as close attention to Ukraine as they had at the beginning. Uh, have you seen that at all? Are you confident that that Ukraine's allies will continue to stand by Ukraine, even if we see, say, a change in a change in leadership where you are uh, and so forth? Yes, I'm. I'm confident because you know everyone sees those atrocities and mass graves that Ukraine discovers on the occupied t- territories after uh, Russian troops. Those mass murders, they cannot just be forgotten. So Western governments cannot just say, oh, okay, tomorrow we will stop helping Ukraine because we are tired. No, this this should be uh, the constant help and even increasing help because we need to stop Russia and Russian military from committing those war crimes. And if we will not do it, Russia tomorrow will recharge and will attack again. 
and there is no guarantee that it will continue attacking only Ukraine. It will may may try to attack other countries. So we need to solve the issue right now together uh, wisely and uh, with uh, with a with a like I know. Sorry for for my yeah. English with determination with determination. Victor Kovalenko, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Some bleak, if not unexpected, news out of Germany today. The economy minister there, Robert Habeck, uh, said that Germany's economy would head into recession in 2023 as a result of Russian President Vladimir Putin's economic war on the West, he called it. They, of course, are heavily reliant or have been traditionally on Russian energy, specifically Russian natural gas. Now those taps are being turned off and they are bracing for what could be a tough winter. They say their strategic reserves are about 95% uh, at capacity, but say nevertheless it is limited and they need to be frugal with gas or energy in general to get through the winter. And that is a scenario playing itself out across Europe heading into this winter. The EU imported about 80% of its total gas needs from Russia traditionally. And they're having to cut that back because obviously because of the war, um, there is every possibility those taps will be turned off. Joining me now is Adam Pankratz. He's a lecturer in the strategy and business economics department at the Souter School of Business at the University of British Columbia. Thank you for your time. Welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here, Ben. Uh, this is, an, I mean, it's starting to get chillier. I think we're all noticing, noticing that even out in BC. Um, in Europe, this winter has taken on some very different dynamics. Uh, but to go back to the beginning, it, it really is a case of you reap what you sow, or in this case, with many European countries, um, what you didn't extract, uh, this reliance on other people to provide them with their energy. Yeah, well, that's certainly the case. I mean, Europe uh, has been heavily reliant on Russian gas, you know, Germany was uh, reliant on Russia for 55% of its natural gas. Finland, uh, you know, the kind of the extreme, 99% of its gas coming from Russia. Um, so Europe has had heavy, heavy reliance on uh, cheap Rus- Russian gas, which has allowed it to pursue other policies and not uh, extract its own uh, natural resources and its own gas, of which it does not have a lot, but which uh, certainly could be um, more used than they are. And when Russia turns off the taps, the reality is that Europe just doesn't have any other options. And that's why they're in the position that we see right now. I know that uh, gas imports uh, out of into Europe from Russia are down substantially. What kind of impact might that have uh, across the continent this winter? We're already seeing Obviously, the the price spikes, or at least the predictions of these huge price spikes, but it's going to have some pretty broad impact if uh, if things if the gas isn't there. Well, I think it's important to divide the impacts into two categories, and one is the economic, and then the other is the potential human impact. Right. So the the economic impact for uh, m- many countries, but again, particularly ones like Germany is that there you know potentially could not be enough gas uh for power generation or for for industry right so you you have a a serious economic problem and that certainly is a big problem um but it pales in comparison to the other side of the human impact where you have a situation where it's theoretically possible that there isn't enough gas to heat german homes and you know what happens in the extreme of that well people die and um you know that is the seriousness of the situation that european governments are currently grappling with um and they're trying to figure out ways to minimize gas consumption but you know we don't know for sure if uh if they can make it through the winter and then i guess it boils down to the things you can control and the things you can't control right so storage is something you can control depending on how much storage room you have um the weather is something you cannot and and you've talked about this in the past as well that's absolutely correct if europe has a mild winter well that's great if it if it doesn't uh if it gets unseasonably cold even as we go into autumn here um there could be uh, real serious problems and that's you know, an extraordinarily precarious uh, thing to balance or to, to 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 put your the future of your continent or your country's economic or just general well being on. Like I hope I hope it doesn't get too cold. Uh, that's not uh, that's not good policy. Let's say. 
No, uh, they have been storing, though. I gather that in terms of trying to have as much natural gas on hand as possible, uh, that has been, at least to, up to now, relatively successful. Uh, they have. Uh, so tanks right now are at 90% um, of where they ought to be. And normally that's enough to get through the winter. And, you know, small uh, things like reducing the average temperature in buildings from 21 or 22 degrees to 19 degrees can actually save a significant amount of energy. Um, whether people are willing to do that remains to be seen. But that that probably, you know, likely, I think we're not going to see the worst case scenario and Europe will get through the winter. But what people are starting just to talk about, but which hasn't really hit the headlines yet, is that this problem is not going away. And the as bad as this winter might be, it's very, very likely that next winter, the problem is really going to be serious because there we can't forget there was gas coming into Russia, uh, sorry, coming in to Europe from Russia most of this year. Uh, that's no longer the case. And so, uh, you know, where is the gas going to come from to fill those storage tanks once it's empty this winter? There really aren't very many answers, uh, good answers to that question. Yeah, it's sort of like the bouncing ball, right? Uh, and and we know that um, one of the big issues here is that any solutions that Europe could turn to take time. And as you've pointed out, um, that's not for this winter, probably not for next winter, likely not for the winter after that. So in the short term, at least, things look pretty precarious. That's exactly correct, right? Any of the solutions that are proposed, um, you know, are going to are gonna take years um, to build a good uh, LNG import terminal to build the pipelines from the United States or from Canada or from wherever else the gas could potentially come from um, is going to take, you know, it is in the broad, broad scheme of things, uh, you know, not not decades, it's it's years, but, you know, you can't you can't survive with no gas for for two or three years um, in the shorter sh term. You know, what we're probably going to see in Europe is uh, gas to oil switching or gas to coal switching. That's already happened. And depending on the type of um, plant or the type of uh, company that you're running, you know, that can take anywhere from a couple weeks to several months. So there are some short-term solutions, but I mean, they, they're, they're not great and they don't solve the, the problem uh, long-term and they certainly don't align with the uh, climate goals of the European Union. So, you know, they, they, they need to figure out a way to get more LNG into Europe one way or another. Yeah, what about Germany and its nuclear? Uh, obviously, after Fukushima, uh, their decision to uh, to turn off nuclear essentially is there is there going back from that at all? Well, at the moment, there doesn't seem to be. Um, and Germany has, you know, sort of equivocated and, and waffled a bit, and it said it wouldn't extend the nuclear, and now it says it will a little bit longer. Um, you know, it certainly seems that nuclear is a very good solution. Uh, for a country like Europe, and the reason, one of the reasons you're seeing France a little bit, and I emphasize a little bit less exposed, is because they have long had a policy of energy self-sufficiency and have a number of nuclear reactors which um, provide the bulk of their electricity. But um, there seems to be, or there does not rather seem to be an appetite to really push the nuclear at this moment. Um, which is unfortunate because I think more and more we're realizing that nuclear, as we transition into a greener future, is probably going to be a decent part of the equation and can be a very productive one. Russia is struggling as well because it's not like they have a whole infrastructure built to uh, to sell this gas to other people either. So just how long can the Russians hold out here? I think if we knew the answer to that question, we could... Uh, more, much more quickly resolve um, resolve the the terrible situation that's currently ongoing. Um, I think a lot of that depends on the moves by India and China. You know, so far they've been very happy to take uh, discounted uh, Russian oil and gas uh, and are very happy to to buy it at at those discounted prices. 
um, and then, you know, either use it themselves or refine it and send it somewhere else in the world. You know, so far, Russia seems to be holding out okay. And uh, one of the reasons for that is the lack of uh, of other alternative fuels, like we discussed in the first segment, um, with the result that the price of oil and gas is much higher than it was previously. So even at um, heavily discounted or heavily restricted amounts, um, when they do come, Russia is still making as much money as it was in you know the previous decade at lower commodity prices. So you know I, I think there's every reason to believe that Russia can probably keep this going for much longer than uh, than anyone would really ideally like to see. What about Canada and all this? We've talked about it. Uh, clearly, the infrastructure is not there for for Canada to help much on the LNG front. It's coming. Uh, at least the first pipeline and LNG distribution will be coming. Uh, but what should Canada be doing now, do you think? Is this now time to invest long term in LNG? Or is this too short a window for us to make any real uh, headway on that front? I think we need to look at this in an even bigger picture than, you know, the already large picture of the the, the Russian war in Ukraine. And say, that the energy transition, the green transition is going to take decades, right? Can we do anything for Europe in the next year or two? Probably not. Um, but is LNG and our fossil fuels going to be part of the energy equation for a long time to come? Yes, absolutely. And one of the great virtues of LNG is that it it is cleaner burning. It's not a it's not a renewable. Uh, energy source, let's be clear, but it is cleaner burning. Um, it's being used to replace coal in in many areas around the world, and that's a good thing. And so that transition, you know, is going to be decades uh, long. Um, and and we're we're sort of seeing that more blatantly than ever how important these fossil fuels are to our way of life. And starting to realize, I think that you know this stuff's going to be here for a while. And in that case. Absolutely, Canada should be developing infrastructure and pipelines and projects and encouraging investment in order to be a part of that decades-long transition to a greener uh, energy situation. In the short term, I imagine there'll be political pressure on European leaders. Might we see more pressure on on North American leaders as well, given what's going on in Europe? One can't imagine that we're isolated. If it is, in fact, a colder winter than we hope for in Europe, if energy supplies start to run short, uh, I think we're going to feel the impact of that everywhere. Well, that, I think, is uncertain uh, because North America is extraordinarily fortunate in our energy situation because we have so much we have lots of oil we have lots of gas and so we have not seen our prices move anywhere near uh up what they have seen in europe you know can you imagine if you got your gas bill in, in next month and your gas bill was a thousand dollars for the month well that's what we're talking about in europe right mm -hmm. uh that is not going to happen in canada um and it's not going to happen in the United States because we have lots of our own own supply and we're sort of isolated from the, the world market in that sense. Now, we're not isolated from oil prices, which affect our gasoline prices. And that might be sort of that pinch at the pump, the most in in your face example for a majority of people of the importance of uh, of, of maintaining a consistent energy supply and fossil fuels uh, to their daily lives. So it will be interesting to see, um, you know, whether larger geopolitical pressures ultimately end up pushing the governments of the United States and Canada to uh, to move quicker and faster from the direction they've currently been. I don't know, uh, but I do certainly hope so, because, as I say, I think the reality of the transition to the green future that our governments uh, have been pursuing for a while now is that it's going to take decades. It's not going to take years. And we need a coherent and realistic plan for those decades to come. Adam Pankratz, thank you so much. My pleasure, Ben. Thank you. You know, I, I've covered the deaths of, of the deaths of police officers in small communities uh, or smaller communities. I mean, anywhere you cover as a reporter, the death of a police officer, it is always 
difficult. In a smaller community, it is particularly difficult because oftentimes the whole community, the whole force, everybody knows each other. You know, these aren't just uh, officers on the street. These are people, these are friends, these are neighbors and so forth. So you can imagine the sense of tragedy and loss tonight in Innisfil, north of Toronto. There was a community vigil there this evening to honor two police officers shot and killed in the line of duty. Uh, they have been identified by the South Simcoe Police Service as 50-year-old, 54-year-old rather, Constable Morgan Russell, a trained crisis negotiator, husband and father of two, and 33-year-old Constable Devin Northrup, who worked with mental health teams. Uh, the service says the officers were responding to a disturbance call around 8 p.m. on Tuesday from family members at a home in that community, Innisfil. Uh, Ontario's police watchdog, the SIU, says the two officers exchanged gunfire with a 23-year-old man inside the home and that he was also killed during the firefight. The SIU later said the gun the suspect used was an SKS semi-automatic rifle. Six-year-old, 60-year-old John Ridge lives near the home where the shooting happened. I think it's horrible, and I'm sickened by it. I mean, these guys go out and put their lives on the line for us every single day, and this is the kind of thanks they get. Yeah, as I mentioned, in communities of that size, Every, people know each other. Uh, the mayor of Innisfil, Ontario, today says the community is shocked. Our, our hearts are broken for the families and for our police colleagues. And it's a dark day and it's going to take us a long time to process this. The mayor of Innisfil, Ontario there. Constable Russell was a 33-year member of the service. Constable Northrop had been with South Simcoe Police for six years. Uh, the prime minister also paid tribute to the officers today. I know the families of people who serve um, are always worried for their loved ones as they step forward to serve their communities to keep the rest of us safe. Uh, and I can't imagine what those families are going through. Please know that we stand with you as families. We stand with all uh, those who step up to serve and protect us all. Constables Northrop and Russell are the third and fourth police officers to be killed in Ontario in the last month. On September 12th, you may remember Toronto Police Constable Andrew Hong was killed in what police called an ambush during a series of shootings uh, that left two others dead and wounded three others. On September 14th, York Regional Police Constable Travis Gillespie died at the scene of a head-on car crash with a drunk driver. Well, joining me now is Dave Perry. He's the CEO of Investigative Solutions Network, a private investigator and a former Toronto police detective. Uh, Dave, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, happy to be here. Dave, I understand this one uh, hit close to home for you too. You have godsons on that very same police force. Uh, You must have, the the thoughts that went through your head when you heard about it this morning. Well, I think I, I felt like anybody who, you know, sort of part of that big policing family that you start wondering who. I mean, it's devastating just to hear the news that an officer has been killed in line of duty. But, you know, the network is pretty solid within the policing community. Calls start to go out. So when I heard the news at 4.30 this morning, I, I contacted those that I know and, and made sure that they were okay. And, uh, you know, they are okay, except for the fact that uh, their, their brothers in, in law enforcement were killed in line of duty, and, and uh, they're going to suffer just like everybody else is going to suffer with that tremendous loss. Yeah, I was mentioning that I'd covered the death of deaths of police officers, sadly, tragically, in smaller communities. And, and, and it, it's not that it's different, but it feels different. It feels like it has an outsized impact on everyone. Uh, it's one of those, you know, we thought this could happen in Toronto. We never believe it would happen here situations. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Um, you know, I've been around long enough to have witnessed and participated in way too many uh, police officers funerals. And there, there is a, a different feel when it's a small community and this entire community and that police service is, it's going to take years for them to come to terms with what's happened here. That's that's how much of an impact it has. It sounds as if, just from the descriptions of their skill sets, it sounds as if these two officers were very much, uh, knew what kind of situations, often found themselves in these sorts of situations. Um, uh, do, do we have, it's very early days yet, but do we have any indication of, of, of what could have possibly have gone wrong here? No, and it's, it's early enough that I certainly wouldn't want to speculate 
with what happened and with what went wrong. But just the description and the nature of the call, as we all know in policing, uh, 99% of these calls, uh, you know, result in some kind of a resolution that doesn't include police officers being seriously hurt or killed. But we also know that the stakes are high, that when you go to any kind of a call that involves family, any kind of a domestic disturbance, and it doesn't matter if it's an intimate partner situation or if the situation like we heard today where it sounded like a grandson and a grandparent or grandparents, the volatility of these calls is, is always the unknown. And, you know, it's unfortunate that it, there are times when it gets to a point where people are at their worst and therefore they're, they're most violent when the police arrived in the hopes of trying to help them. And instead you have the tragic results that we saw in Innisville. Yeah, I mean, South Simcoe obviously had someone who could deal with mental health uh, emergencies, someone who was a crisis negotiator. These were people trained to handle these sorts of calls, it would seem, just by looking at, at their at their, at their credentials. Yeah, for sure. And here, here's the thing that we all know, any, any of us that have served, we, we all know this, is that you can train and you can have a level of expertise in crisis management and negotiations and so on but you're only in control of what you can control and in cases like this things get out of control in a real hurry and uh, you know a police officers can be life can be taken within a split second before anybody's even had a chance to engage and when i say that to speak to somebody to even have a dialogue and just the mere presence of the uniform and um you know, you, you have people that will respond with lethal force, including, you know, firearms and so on. So police officers from time to time are unfortunately murdered in, under these circumstances. And in this particular case, it, it's about as bad as it gets. Two police officers, small town, uh, very, you know, fairly small police service. Every officer knows every officer intimately. They know the community members uh, intimately. The chief of police who, who um, you know, obviously did the news release announcing who the officers were today. He would have known, known these officers. He would have known their families. He would have known their children. You know, it's it's just another level of, of sadness when it happens in a small town. And uh, for all of us that uh, that served, this is, you know, your worst moment in, in your life and your worst moment in your career. And we all bleed blue, and there's there's people right across this country and, and globally that are, are feeling the effect of these two murders today. Yeah, I've seen the outpouring of sympathy from right across the country and abroad. Um, I imagine that that most officers can picture themselves in in that situation, a disturbance, right? Something that, as you pointed out, is often just routine um, ending this way. I imagine that any officer who's been on the street knows exactly what that disturbance call might look like and, and what what uh, and what could go wrong. Yeah, and every officer will look back after a a career in this and and think that could have been me at this particular call or you know during this particular uh, interaction with somebody and and most of us face some kind of a a life-threatening situation sometimes multiple times in your career and you always hope that it's not going to happen to you and of course you hope it's not going to happen to anybody and any of your colleagues in law enforcement but the reality is it does happen and it's been a really tough uh, month in, in law enforcement, especially in the GTA here, where we've had such significant losses. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm heartbroken about what happened. All I'm thinking about is those families tonight. Yeah. Um, how much information do officers have going to calls like that? When I mean, how much do they know heading to that call about what may be there, what may be the nature of the problem, whether there are weapons? Do, do, how much information do they have when they go, especially in a smaller community where they might even know the address? Yeah, as as much as possible, and it, it's uh, you know it's it's a, it's a moving piece of policing is you know the intelligence you have when you're you're going to a call. Sometimes you can go um, fairly well armed with with information. You know somebody's got a you know history with the police, and you've got lots of warnings that this person may be violent towards officers. There's Depending on the nature of the call, there you can then take the time to have lots of backup, and you can handle the call in a completely different way. Other times, uh, you know, somebody uh, for whatever reason uh, does the ultimate. They go from somebody who's had no criminal record or a very minor criminal record that wouldn't stand out or make them stand out, and you have that person being, you know, the suspect in in a murder or 
in the death of a couple of police officers or, or whatever. So it's it's the unknown that is always going to be the part that keeps you awake at night from call to call to call. And listen, after a career in police, some of the most frightening experiences were the ones that you just didn't expect. You didn't see them coming. Right. Ones where you ones that seemed routine until they weren't. Yeah, exactly. And and again, you know, some of the most peaceful or at least apparent peaceful arrests that you could make. And suddenly, for whatever reason, and it's usually an unknown reason, the the uh, the person turns extremely violent and then you're in a a life and death struggle. They're, they're trying to take your firearm. They, you know, they're trying to get to a weapon. They try and get in their vehicle and drag you down the street with the vehicle. And, you know, so again, things can go from zero to a hundred in a split second. And that's generally when officers uh, are injured or killed in the line of du- duty. And, you know, you can train every day. You can train all you want to do. And it's, a, it's like a military saying, you know, every, you can do all the training you want. And then when the first uh, breach of the border happens or the first bomb gets dropped, uh, the rule book almost goes out the window and you're in a survival mode and you, you do you do what you can and the best you can to to make sure you get through that moment. Dave, this has been a really tough month for the police, uh, for police officers across Ontario and across Canada, for that matter. Uh, but you also knew Constable uh, Andrew Hong as well, the, the Toronto police officer who was shot and killed, uh, ambushed uh, earlier this month. Uh, what kind of impact does that have on just being able to go out and do your job every day. I mean, I realize that everyone is a dedicated professional, but it must hit really close to home for everyone there. It hits very close to home. And, um, you know, I, I like to separate two things. You know, you mentioned morale earlier. And at times like this, it's not so much as a morale issue as it is, a, you know, a grief issue. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously the police officers in Innisfil are all going to be grieving for quite a period of time as will those poor families and police officers from across the country, because that's just what we do. It it hits you right in the pit of your stomach anytime you hear that an officer has been killed in the line of duty. And of course, the closer you get to that that uh, horrible tragedy, the, the more it's going to hurt. So, grief, as we all know, is an ongoing process. It's going to take a very long time. And in a small a small community like Innisfil, it's it's going to take that particular police service, all of those men and women who go out and serve every every day, it's going to take them a, a very, very long time. And some of them, of course, may not ever get over it, and, and I don't think we ever do. Have we gotten better, uh, or at least have police services gotten, gotten better at recognizing what happens to officers when these sorts of tragedies befall a force, or even within a province, or a neighbouring force for that matter? Well, I think so, but uh, it doesn't change the, no. the impact, obviously. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we've gotten better at being more open about, you know, the impacts and, and the damage done in terms of grief and and so on and, for, and, and how to manage some of the losses. But it, it doesn't change how people are going to feel in, in the moment and, and in the months and years that follow. So that, that's always going to be a very challenging part. What really helps police officers, uh, we're very lucky to be in a country like this where even though it's probably the high, most highly criticized profession on the planet, and there has been an awful lot of negativity about the police in recent years, um, that this is the time when officers truly understand and feel and know that their communities are behind them. And it's that outpouring of community support that will get these officers and their family and that entire community through through such a tragedy. So I can't emphasize enough just how important it is to have the public support at a time like this. When you see three, I mean, these, this is three officers shot and killed in the line of duty in a matter of a month, uh, exactly a month, actually. Um, is there anything more that, that needs to be done to better protect police? Uh, it begs, I guess we don't know the, the circumstances in his, in his fill, uh, but it, is, does this really raise any alarm bells for you? Well, it's too early again for the Innisfil one to, to, for any of us to comprehend, you know, what, what led to this and, and what were the circumstances that were either known or unknown before it happened. So all of that thing, all of that process has to unfold. Um, but, you know, I mean, we can talk and go around circles with this all day long, but my personal belief is that we've kind of lost our way here with our justice system in Canada, and mm-hmm. we need to start, uh, you know, 
forcing our elected uh, leaders to you know, tighten down on law enforcement in terms of punishment and accountability. We can't have the revolving door that we see now where very violent criminals who are charged with up to and including murder are, are getting out in bail and then recommitting offenses. So those kinds of things, that's, that's a big talk for another day as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, supporting the police in, in that way and listening to the police and, and, and actually understanding what's happening to our streets through the eyes in the ears of police officers who know exactly what they're doing, who are very professionally trained and, and who are proud of their profession and want to do the best thing for their communities. Maybe people should be listening to them a little bit more than they do right now. And a reminder here too, I guess, that uh, that the problems that we often associate with, with bigger places are prevalent everywhere now when it comes to drugs, gangs, guns. It doesn't matter how small the community is these days, especially in bedroom communities outside big cities. Yeah, it's happening everywhere. Um, you know, that's the thing that I see today. I do a lot of travel in, in my business, and I do travel uh, in big cities and small towns, and the only thing I'm seeing is the same thing, is that, you know, the, the drugs and and the results of, the, you know, the, the drug trade and the violence and the, the guns and the gangs are, are taking a hold of virtually every community, you know, at some level, um, you know, and it's impacting everybody. So, Maybe we should be looking at what it is we need to do as a, as a country to to improve this situation. I mean, you know, I started policing a very long time ago, and there was a time when, you know, people were, you know, for example, God forbid you say it today, they were forced into care. You know, you wouldn't leave a homeless person sleeping on a sidewalk at, uh, you know, at midnight on a cold winter's night when it's 25 below and they could they could perish you. You know, we had the power, at least the police had the power to actually apprehend them, not arrest them not get them in trouble, but to take them to a place of safety. And all of those social programs are long gone. Our mental health facilities are wide open and they're not holding on and caring for people the way they used to. And and then the same, as I said, with the criminal justice system, um, there's no accountability. It's a revolving door. Criminals are laughing going in and going out of court because they know very little is going to happen. And, you know, they might have the gun seized on one night and their drugs seized on, on that same night. And, you know, within a day or two, they're back out. They have another gun. They have more drugs, and they're right back at doing what they they do every other day, and and that creates, you know, all kinds of problems for us as a society, and the, and the poverty and and the violence that comes out of that. It's Dave it's, Perry. It's measurable. It's not good. Leave it. At, thank you so much for your time tonight.